we find ourselves at the first ever installment of Open Swim, which was a little bit of a pipe dream for our for our firm for a few months, but now we're making it happen. I think all of us love storytelling and wanted to find a way to also exploit the conversations that go on around the office and bring, you know, external audiences into <laughs> our um, craziness that happens on a day to day. So um, I'm Hallie Bram Kogelschatz and here with me today we have our agency contributors, Eric Kogelschatz, Jennifer Cho Salath and Brian Andrzejewski. So, you know, there's a lot of things that we've been talking about around the office, but because, you know, one of our core competencies at the firm is producing content, I think we've been really attuned to the whole conversation around fake news. You know, obviously, we've just come off an election and inauguration and all of that. And no matter what side of the political spectrum you find yourself on, I think that, you know, it's really interesting to see what's happening um, with the press and the media and the conversation that's ensuing around it. And, and, you know, it's kind of interesting because Jennifer comes to us from a media background, having spent time as a journalist on that side of things for many years, um, I think has some pretty interesting insights on that. And I'm just curious. I want to know more about what you think and some of the things that you're seeing and what you think is going to happen in the next few months. Fake news, I think, is alarming and... Um, thought-provoking and as a journalist I think it brings <coughs> the discussion back to kind of the importance of journalism mm. what is journalism the importance of journalism what does journalism do in the in the um, in this new age of fake news versus fact-based reporting and it kind of reminds me of um, school actually so I spent <coughs> time at um, Columbia's graduate school of journalism and we we would kind of dissect, you know, what is journalism? And something that really stuck with me was how journalism is the fourth estate, meaning it's it refers to the fourth branch of government. So, you know, we've got the legislative, executive, judicial branch, and how the press is the fourth estate, meaning it's the fourth kind of watchdog, checks and balances. Um, and in this case, keeping political players, uh, keeping them accountable. And for all intents and purposes, it's been like that for the better part of yeah. at least America's history, wouldn't Absolutely. you say? Yeah. And so we would always talk about practicing journalism with a capital J, so to speak. You know, this is, um, so I can't think of a better time than now, that fourth estate being so important. And, um, and fact, it's so threatened right now, too. Absolutely. Yeah. It's threatened. And I feel for my colleagues who are trying to seek the truth. And report on the truth and it's difficult to do that when they're being told that those facts aren't in fact facts but what is what is the impact of social media on, on the media like Marshall McLuhan with uh, his book the famous book you know the, the medium is the message you know thinking about how social media now is that platform what does that do to journalism how does that change well the, the great thing about journal or social media and journalism everything's happening in real time so now you can have journalists just hop on their phones and, you know, I, I feel like everything now is the way people are going to look at it is, okay, is it journalism or is it propaganda? You know, and I think the distinction of those two is really important. And in terms of social media, I think journalists have a very powerful tool they can use to directly talk to people. The, the social media platforms have a role to play. They should act like 
publishers. They should be journalists and 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 think about how this algorithm oh, you're, you're, is okay. creating a filter bubble and forcing people to just can see the same thing over and over again. They should have they should play a role in that. Well, it's interesting because. Um, Facebook is now working with an advocacy group, advocacy group, I forgot the name, but to root out, or not root out, but to highlight what fake news is. Fake news, is yeah. that going to appear on your feed? Okay, if it is fake news, then how how are social media platforms like Facebook going to flag that? Are they going to flag that? You know, is that an impediment on free speech? Um, there's all these conversations around um, what responsibility do social media platforms have to the consumer, to the reader. Cause and how does that people, make you feel? Like as a journalist, I mean, do you feel, because I know there's some conversation around, is that a form of censorship? Because, you know, there's there's obviously, like you say, journalism with a capital J, and there's this ethical um, sort of requirement that most journalists embody. Um, but then there is, you know, what some people call fake news. Others might just call branded content. Yeah. So how do you draw the line? How does that affect you know, where people are getting their, you know, quote unquote news. Well, you know, what's interesting. Don't you remember being a kid in the grocery store in the in the aisle waiting to check out and you'd see the National Enquirer? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You see the National Enquirer next to other magazines, other newspapers. And I don't know, as a kid, to me, the branding of National Enquirer was fake news. Right. I oh, mean, absolutely. sensationalistic, you know, 300 pound baby born to an alien. I mean, so maybe it's also, that's interesting, Hallie, that you talk about branded content because things like fake news sites, you know, um, Breitbart, for example, a lot of people say that's fake news, right? So is it that same, but I don't think it's the same mentality as when we were kids when we looked at the National Enquirer. People are looking at news sites that aren't journalism. As a resource. Right. Well, and, and how, I guess it depends on how you quantify fake news because, you know, using Breitbart as an example... Breitbart has a lot of opinion pieces. So is it fake news? Is it opinion? Is it opinion being presented as but fact? But they, pre they present it as opinion, presented as, as fact. And that's so, very, that's dangerous because those are, you know, opinions. I mean, they could be fact-based or they could be completely pie in the sky, but you could present them. The way they present it as news is, I think, the dangerous part. So well, and I think that's, that's part of the problem, right, is that, you know, I think everyone has a different definition of fake news. I mean, a lot of what has emerged out of this campaign and now, you know, what's happened in the um, sort of wake of the inauguration is conversation around rhetoric, you know, and words. And, you know, this, this idea of, you know, recently Kellyanne Conway was on uh, Meet the Press with Chuck Todd and presented the idea of alternate facts. Um, a lot of people have trouble with that phrase, um, and some don't because some really do believe that there are, you know, two different versions of the same story. And we've heard that from, you know, time and time again from the dawn of the press um, or conversation for that matter. Um, so do you think that it is a matter of, you know, kind of in the eye of the beholder? Or do you think that it is a situation where um, one side clearly knows that they're presenting something that it's a falsehood? I mean, it's very hard to tell sometimes. Well, there's always two sides to a story, right? But then I think alternative facts, I think alternative facts equals not, not the truth, the un untruth, which equals lie. And it's really interesting because this week I think the press really has kind of wrestled with how do we navigate the, the term alternative facts? Do we call it a lie, right? Because journalists tread lightly on that word lie because they don't want to um, be sued for libel. 
Um, that word lie is just very loaded and it's packed. However, we're seeing it now in the New York Times. We're seeing journalists use the word lie, just calling it, you know, for what it is. And um, I think that's such a bold move, and I haven't seen that um, in quite a while. I don't know if I've ever seen a headline with that word referring to, referring to someone in the administration, referring to even the president in this case. It seems like, too, with headlines that there's not as much respect as there used to be and, and, and from both sides as you, as you look at the way headlines are coming out. What do you like, mean by that? Do you think it, it means that, you know, they're more, um, you're seeing more, more opinion? It seems more conversational to yeah. me, less, um, you know, fact-based. It seems more off the cuff and... Misleading, too. Yeah, and misleading. Because they want you to click on it. They want you to read. I mean, that's a whole other ball of wax Well, it goes right in, there. And actually, that brings up a really good topic with the clickbait, and right? And people are just going further into these areas of information that they already know about, but they just keep getting more, you know? So the idea of the filter bubble and how the algorithms of Google and Facebook and how they affect people. According to Pew Research, they say that 44% of people say that they get their news from Facebook. You know, that that's dramatic. You know, that's where people are starting to think that they're getting their informa- information and needs to be accurate. Um, so how can we start to correct this and, and how can the social media platforms, you know, affect the algorithm so it's showing people, you know, well, a full breadth I, of the options out there? I think it's an algorithm issue, but I also think it's an individual responsibility issue. I mean, I think, you know, especially for people that have powerful social media communities you know those those influencers or super influencers out there i think there is a responsibility because they become curators of the news so checking your sources um looking at you know the facts before you post something there is sort of an individually focused responsibility that quite honestly i mean from what i'm seeing out there i mean not many people have um, you know, something, you know, they see in the news or, you know, even if it's a fake news story, but it, it supports an opinion that they may have, they repost it without thinking about where the news is coming from. Um, and I've seen some pretty powerful examples of this that are, are, you know, quite honestly, very frightening because they start to incite concern and fear in their friend base, their family base, their network, their community. And it's all based on you know, what may not be a very reliable source. And the crazy thing is, you know, Indiana University actually did a study and they, and they looked at these Twitter accounts that were publishing the fake news and they all have two common traits. They, they're they posting all the time and they never reply to people. You know, so th- it goes against everything that social media is about, the conversation and how you interact with people. Well, and based on what you're saying, it also should make it very easy for people to check whether or not where they're getting their news is actually a fake news site. I don't think that's always possible, but I do think that, you know, you may be able more likely than not to, you know, do a little homework and you might see behavioral patterns that lead you towards one conclusion or another. And I think it probably speaks to a broader social, cultural issue, just how we're we're such consumers. We're a Walmart society, right? We want it and we want everything cheap and we don't want to do much work for it and I think that's how we consume our information too we're not going to check facts because we maybe we're too lazy to check our facts or maybe we're too trusting to check our facts or Um, those are the facts we want to hear exactly yeah but I think what's interesting in response to what Hallie was just talking about it came out in the news yesterday that somebody is taking responsibility and trying to have an alternative to the mainstream media 
Ironically, though, it's from somebody who's very well esteemed from the news industry, and that's Dan Rather. And it was announced yesterday that he's launching a Facebook page that he's calling News and Guts. Over the past year, as the election cycle got more controversial and more heated, he became this seed of reason, this voice of reason. And I think people really responded to that because he was this person that everybody knew from this time of news being something you could trust. And um, I think his response to this era of accusations and uncertainty with sources of information is really interesting. He's, um, I'm going to quote him. He said, I got into news in the first place to be part of something noble and bigger than myself. Um, he said, the goal is to inform, innovate, and, and inspire. This Facebook page will be under the stewardship of a very talented group of reporters who work at my company. These are men and women who know real news. They reported with me around the globe from dangerous and difficult datelines. I trust them, and so should you. Mm. He's like father journalism, <laughs> taking our hand, guiding us through this crazy era that we're living in. Well, absolutely, and I, I do think that is an era that we really don't have anymore. For example, right post, post-election, to have... Tom Brokaw explain what was happening. I think there was such a sense of certainty and um, in very uncertain times. Yeah. There's a comfort is, level for there's sure. A, there's a comfort level. Yes, exactly. Again, it coming from hearkening from that time of news being uh, an era of trust, and um, you know, it, it wasn't so muddled as it is today. That's one thing that really does pique my interest about what's happening right now is what additional news sources are we going to see and who's going to be behind them and are they going to be objective? Are they even going to pretend to be objective? Because I think that, you know, and Jen, I mean, you can comment more on this, but I think there is a, um, you know, a history of journalists at least trying to present themselves as being objective. Whether or not you, you believe that, you know, I think that everybody knows there is media bias at this point, but... Um, I think that, you know, at least that was the way that the content was often presented. Um, And like Eric said, you know, oftentimes now we're seeing headlines that are more opinionated or emotionally driven, even in mainstream news sources. Um, And with some of these newer outlets like News and Guts, I'm I'm guessing that they're not going to try and hide that bias. Um, And that part of what they see their value as being is... um, I hate to call it sort of like a, a watchdog group, but it is a little bit that way because um, what they're, you know, they, they certainly have a political leaning and they're going to be, I, I believe, very vocal about when they think there are, you know, alternate facts, let's say, being presented. So I do think it'll be interesting to see what else comes up. And whether people become even, you know, people being citizens of of this country, the United States, if we become even more polarized because we start getting our news from sources that are saying what we want to hear. So I guess on a societal level, part of what I have concern around is that we don't have the ability to change hearts and minds because we are going to go to sources that are going to say what we want to hear. So I think it's a journalist issue Uh, it's a news related issue but I also am concerned about what this is going to do to divide rather than bring us together and start to share the stories that need to be shared um, just generally and not necessarily because they lean one way or the other so I I do think that that'll be something that's interesting we'll have to watch over the next few months and I'm sure we'll discuss again on this podcast 
Um, but I do think that, the, you know, we're starting to see that happen. Um, and we're at this point in time, you know, recording a week after the inauguration. So, um, I, you know, I, I do think that this is happening swiftly and it's certainly going to be a trend in 2017 to watch. And I, I also think that the platform that Dan Rather's creating will become like the benchmark. So we'll start to see where, you know, what direction people go into. But we do need to think about the platforms outside of that. So, you know, what tools can we create for the other platforms to guide them? I propose an idea. Ooh, an idea. An idea, guys. A free idea. A free idea. So imagine if Google created a plugin for Chrome and it basically would remove any article that didn't have at least three reputable sources attributed to it. So it's, it's basically the idea of Larry Page, Sergey Brin taking over Wikipedia and using AP Stylebook as its technical requirements document. So it's just creating this platform to make sure that every publication has at least three sources. Well, I like that idea because I think what it means is that, um, you know, someone's doing some research. I think a lot of the content out there is opinion-based right now. Absolutely. You need to have, I mean, that was kind of a rule of thumb at J School is sourcing. Who are you going to quote? The more sources you have for an article, the better. Because you need to have someone substantiating those facts. And like Hallie said about opinion pieces, that's that's opinion. The source is you, right? But if you are interviewing officials, getting quotes from these officials, if you're uh, quoting from a report, I mean, these are all fact-based. Well, you would hope they'd be fact-based reporting. And um, I think it also speaks to a larger issue of kind of piggybacking Hallie on what you're talking about before I feel like it's a larger issue of branding too just we live in an era now where people's minds when they think about Fox News they think conservative CNN liberal they think New York Times liberal New Yorker I feel like everything is compartmentalized and so people yeah they'll go to their news source and it's not balanced anymore and there, uh, I think that's why Dan Rather has this news and guts is he wants to present something. I mean, it's supposed to be objective. It's it's supposed to be unbiased. Yeah, you can have opinion opinions in there that reflect each side or however many sides you want to present to your reader. But I think that's it's so reflective of our culture too. Right? We're so divided. We um, we want to put each other in a box. We want to. Yeah, I feel like it's it's kind of a mirror. We can't just say, oh, it's just the media and they're doing this. Well, it's actually kind of reflective of, of the people consuming the media, too. It's it's this relationship. And how do we correct that? I don't know. That's kind of the big question. Does it need to be corrected? Um, I feel like right now is a perfect opportunity for journalists and journalism to calibrate itself. First, it was the digital age. Everyone was trying to figure out, okay, how do we make ourselves profitable? We have newspapers folding, you know, every weekend. Some, I mean, the local paper I worked at in California is not as unrecognizable. Now it's mostly AP news stories that get folded in to the, to the paper. You don't have local reporting anymore, which I think is at the heart of what makes um, local journalism so important. And, you know, if you don't have these people living in these communities – understanding the day-to-day of what happens in these people's lives, it's very difficult to report on. So I, I think that has a larger story of, or a larger reason of corporations buying 
small papers, turning it into a big um, conglomerate, and then you don't have those, um, you don't have a... Those voices. You don't have the voices, absolutely. But I am curious because we're finding ourselves in a place where there is tension. There are tension between political sides. There are tension between people, individuals, and there's certainly tension between the press and the new administration. Um, or to look at it another way, there's tension between the press and with some non-administration groups, you know, groups that, you know, are part of the, you know, faction of society that didn't win the election. So I guess in my question for all of us is what do we think is going to happen or what could happen to bring um, more dialogue rather than this feeling of, I say one thing, you say another thing, and, you know, never the two shall meet. I'm just curious if we have any thoughts or predictions on how we can create more opportunity to have conversation rather than, you know, just shutting each other down. Um, And, you know, this obviously applies to the press, but I think it could also apply to branded content as well and the responsibility that brands have, um, you know, with their content marketing plans. So any thoughts? It's interesting. I saw something on Instagram the other day, and it was um, a picture of a protester at um, the Women's March in D.C., and he was holding up a sign, and it said, left or right, we can all see what's wrong. Me personally, I went to the Women's March in D.C., and it was a way for me to channel that anger into a positive positive way. For me, that sign that he held talked talked more about okay, we can have our opinions about politics or whatnot, be it you be on the left or the right, but we let's find things that we can agree on. I think, to me, that's what the message of that sign was. And I feel like that maybe is a great starting point. What can we find? Because really, I feel like as human beings, we have way more in common than we, than we do, you know, than we have differences with each other. And I feel like it's finding... What are those commonalities? What are those connections? I do think some brands are beginning to respond to that. A great example would be the piece that Amazon put out around the holiday that when I saw it personally, I was so moved and I've seen it just, it just soared through social media. And uh, the initial reaction a lot of people were saying was, oh, that's a European commercial, but I've seen it carrying well through the month of January here in the States. And it involves a... Roman Catholic priest and a Muslim imam having tea and they both get up you know to part ways and they both kind of have this moment of hesitation where it's implied that their you know knees hurt and right away on their their walks you know the the their you know as they part ways they both log on to Amazon and you see them ordering something they they both receive a package in the mail and you see that it's this knee brace and it ends with the two of them worshiping on their knees as religions do in in prayer and it was such a quiet yet powerful piece there's no speaking it's all through music and you know so I, i think that's a shining example of showing the differences that we have but the unity of humanity yeah and i think if if you had to break it down branding and, and marketing you either view it as providing information to consumers or it's persuasion. So 
the key is how can brands move forward in this new environment? Are they going to inspire or are they going to influence? And I think that example there is all about inspiring. And I think that's where you're going to see a lot of brands adding. It's in- about inspiring, but I also think it's, it's a way of education too. Of, you know, I think it's almost in a sense, it's their silent protest. Like, you know, get with it basically is what that ad says to me is come on. As a brand, you are establishing a trust between yourself and your consumer, between yourself and your reader. So when we're talking about business, if you can't establish that trust with your consumer, if we're living in this era of fake news, how is any how is a consumer going to trust to buy anything from you? How is your consumer going to trust the story that you're telling? So I think fake news is not just about journalism or the media. I think it spills over into so many different areas. And if we're talking about business and marketing and consulting, it has to be rooted in the truth. I think a great segue to the authenticity that Jen is speaking to applies to social media platforms as well. I particularly have been reflecting a lot on Instagram. And I, I, as an artist and a designer, have from the minute that I was introduced to Instagram about five years ago now, it was an instant love affair. Um, you know, to me, it has been a place of inspiration and connection. Um, personally, my my brand, Gray Cardigan, that I have as an illustrator and, and an artist, it's allowed me to connect globally with not only fans of my work, but I've become fans of several other artists' work, as well as just connecting and getting to know people. I was struck by the power of the global influence and power of Instagram when in 2013, I was a finalist in the Martha Stewart American Made competition, where I had placed in the top six. And it was through social media, it was a month-long campaign of talk about elections. It, it, I, people told me after the fact that I should have been a politician because it was my job every day. And they kept extending the deadline, which was deadly, um, to incite people to place six votes for me a day on this website. And so I chose to do it in a way where instead of, you know, you see that a lot on social media, like vote for me and vote for this, I may I wanted to engage people and have them be a part of it. And I would was very conscious in terms of the language that I use that we could do this. You are helping me. You know, whenever numbers were shifting and whatnot, it was incredible the rallying that I experienced through that. And a big part of that came through Instagram. Cause suddenly I realized the global effort that was being put into getting me to that position in the competition, you know, where I would have people from Sweden dressing in all gray and support a gray cardigan or, you know, follower from Australia using his social networks to, you know, incite people to vote for me. And so those are the positive things. Again, daily inspiration. I still feel that way about Instagram, but I've also become very disheartened by it. Like anything that becomes popular, the trolls in a sense (laughs) arrive. And the latest trend that I've been noting in particular in the past year has been followers, people that I follow, I should say, who clearly have now been approached to be sponsors of brands. And um, because a lot of these people are in the fashion industry um, or actually aren't in the fashion industry, at least initially. And, but they've curated this following and brands are responding to that. 
And I've watched a lot of feeds that I used to adore basically sell out. And their content and even just their language is always revolving around, you know, loving my trip to this coffee shop in my blank shoes, keeping tabs on my blank tablet. And it's just absolute pure, pure, you could pure product placement. Mm -hmm. And that's been really frustrating to me. Um, Well, and you know, it isn't that it's so um, divergent from what was happening when blogging became mainstream. Absolutely. You had a lot of people that were um, all of a sudden, you know, being paid to promote products. But I think, you know, what you're talking about is slightly different because not all these people are being paid. They're hoping to get attention. Exactly. Um, they're looking for spheres of social influence. They're not looking for money because I think that what a lot of people have been trying to figure out is how to capitalize on social media and make it either revenue driving for them or create a network that they have the ability to market to. Exactly. So it, it, it like you say, it feels inauthentic for that reason. It, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and the, the numbers are there. It, you know, there is the power of this platform of Instagram. Um, according to Hootsuite, social media advertising budgets have doubled worldwide over the past two years, going from $16 billion in 2014 to $31 billion in 2016. And analysts are predicting a 26 percent global increase on spending for social media ads um, and those are and again that's two different things you have social media ads and then you have the the alignment with certain channels on on instagram so i know i wanted to put that out there and talk a little bit about thoughts on you know as somebody who personally uses instagram and and we you know we use it a lot with our clients and for our clients I think that, you know, it's, there's that connection to fake news. You know, what is fake? What is authentic? I think it has everything to do with your intentions. If, if it's, if it doesn't come from an authentic place, then you shouldn't be doing it. And I think that's true for individual users of social media and then also brands. So one thing actually that I thought was really interesting was when the election was happening, even before we knew who was going to win, I think all of us internally at Shark and Minnow were having conversation about what this was going to do for arts and culture. Um, and not from the what is it going to do to arts and culture from a funding or a political sense, but, you know, in times of divide, you know, you think about the Vietnam War, you think about, um, you know, civil rights and everything that was happening in the late 60s, early 70s. You know, it was a really interesting time for art and fashion and music. And, you know, I think there was a sense around the office at Shark and Minnow that no matter what happened politically, we were going to find ourselves in a situation where you were going to see some pretty interesting things happen from an arts and culture perspective. And I think already we're one week into the administration um, as we record this, and we're already starting to see some really interesting things. Um, so I think it's going to be a really exciting year ahead for our um, you know, those different artistic spheres. Um, but Eric, you know, I know you've been kind of tracking this. What kind of things are you seeing right now? And uh, what do you think is to come? All right, so here's my theory. I think we're going to see some amazing music. So think about... Wait, can you first talk about what your prediction was before the election? And you had predictions around, like, what kinds of music were going to come out. Do you remember this? Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about this. I think it's a similar model to what we saw in the 80s and early 90s, okay? So 
Then rock Why was... Why 80s and early 90s, though? I mean, do you think that that was as volatile of a period? Well, the 80s, I think, because there was a similar dynamic within politics. The 90s, I think it, it's because of the transition from some of the hair bands of the 80s into the grunge and post-rock scene. So you saw some amazing bands come out of it you know, that range from post-rock to more alternative. But here's my theory, okay? So think about it as, you know, it's a similar model to what we experienced in the 80s and 90s. Then rock was about the talking heads. Songs like the Democratic Circus. Found out this morning there's a circus coming to town. Now it's Arcade Fire with songs like I Give You Power. Then and that punk- just came out. I mean, this hasn't even been out a week. It's pretty amazing. That song is incredible. It really is great. Yeah, I mean, I love Mavis Staples on it, too. And you it's have to turn it all the way up. You can't listen to it <laughs> low. It has to be loud. And you have to be in your car. I mean, like literally in the last few weeks, I feel like I cannot get away from Mavis Staples. Not that I want to, but it's like she's getting a Kennedy Center honor. I saw her on Sunday morning. Now she's in an Arcade Fire song. I mean, literally, she is everywhere. And um, that's, that's kind of cool. I mean, that's a really interesting, um, I, think, I, I think it's interesting to see her back kind of forward facing. I think it's a great time to make music. Then punk was Black Flag with songs like Rise Above. Now it's United Nations with songs like Stairway to Marlago and Bad Boys Club with Inauguration Day. Then rap was Public Enemy with songs like Fight the Power. Fight the Power! And hip hop was a trap called Quest with the Native Tongues Collective and the Zulu Nation. Can I kick it? Yes, you can. Can I kick it? Yes, you can. Can I kick it? But it's still a tribe called Quest with songs like We Are the People. That album's amazing. So when I heard We Are the People for the first time, this was the first single from the tribe called Quest's new album, the hook, the poetry, oh. just I got chills. It was a prophecy. We don't believe you, cause we the people. Are still Hearing Q Tip sing those lyrics in that song, I feel like it reflected this collective anxiety that many people are feeling. One good thing, though, is that I, I feel like the best art is created out of tension. So I, I think we're gonna see some really great art music fashion writing you know at at shark and middle we talk a lot about creative friction and friction Mm. can be good and bad which poses a really great question is what specific artist or band do you hope within the next year you will hear their response to creative friction that's happening in this current climate 
I personally am looking forward to what Tori Amos is going to say because I really mm-hmm. think she's going to have a quiet yet profound statement on what many people are feeling and thinking, mm-hmm. as she always does. And I really hope America and Bread come back. Who? America, America and, bread. and Bread. You can, That's not her. <laughs> because I love Bread. bread. <laughs> I want to see Royce and Marilyn come back from the dead. Oh, yes. This country is garbage. I think I'd like to see somebody that you wouldn't expect. Like someone who's, I was going to say Madonna, but she's political in her work. Hip hop is usually, there's a voice that's going to say something reflecting their politics. So I'm trying to think of someone who isn't necessarily political in their music, like very neutral. Like who's a well, neutral? Who's a neutral? That brings out? up a good question, too. I think the past few years, there's been this whole notion of, manufactured electronic pop no soul to music and it's an interesting correlation to what Hallie was saying earlier you know you had this kind of shiny clean music of the 50s and I think when the volatility of the 60s came around that is where a lot of this classic protest reactionary music came from so Mm -hmm. the question is will this current atmosphere in a sense bring back some of that authenticity to music that a lot of people are accusing of being gone from and would be really interesting from artists that you wouldn't expect it from mm-hmm. yeah, I think not that I want to hear an anthem from Justin Bieber I- <laughs> <laughs> but I do think you're going to be surprised I mean I think there are going to be people that come out of left field and may surprise you with some really strong not just statement-driven music, but music just for the sake of, you know, something something danceable or something enjoyable or whatever it is. I think you're going to see a lot more of that than maybe we've seen in the past few years because I do think that, you know, every sort of genre has a little bit of an expiration date on it. And we've seen this carryover from the 90s, um, especially in pop music, where you see a lot of the same manufactured beats, um, especially in the top 40 type of set. Um, and I do think that it's been, you know, certain trends like, you know, auto tuning and, you know, heavy electronics, you know, lack of like, a lot of sampling, a lot of sampling, lack of, you know, like, you know, it's, it's not the Motown model anymore. Right. You know, it's not like the live band in studio that records together. Sadly, that um, we need that wall of sound back. Totally. And I think that, you know, you may see more of that because, Kind of going back to what you said about authenticity in social media and what we talked about in the news, I think that people are yearning for that in music as well. So, you know, I do think that um, you're, you're seeing that with some of these examples that Eric's talking about, um, you know, Arcade Fire and Tribe and things like that. But I do think it's going to continue. I'm trying to think of like who I'd like to see put out an album. It's really tough because I do think that there's a lot brewing under the surface I know we're going to talk about it later, but, you know, there's some interesting things happening with uh, Donald Glover, a.k.a. Childish Gambino, um, and some of the things that he's doing to try and create authentic experiences um, through his music, through his art, through his, you know, even through what he's doing with Atlanta. Um, But, you know, I think there's going to be more, you know, work like that coming out um, where it's multisensory and... Um, you know, may not be as hard hitting about a political statement, um, but maybe more about the nuances of the statement and how it affects the human condition. So, I mean, that's what I'm most excited to see. 
I would like to see a protest album from Britney Spears. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't they all, though, in some strange way? I'm going to predict that the White Stripes are going to get back together and put out an amazing album. Oh, oh my God, that. that would be amazing. I'd love that. All right, yeah. that's on the list. Okay, so guys, um, one of the things that's happening, and I don't know if it will have already happened by the time this podcast airs, but um, we're in the midst of award season. And that's kind of exciting for me, being the resident film nerd here. But I know all of us love to take ourselves to the cinema. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, what is everyone loving right now? And what do you think this means for film in the next year? I loved Moonlight. I oh, it was too. so good. It was yeah. a work of art. Yeah. No, it's really interesting because when Eric and I saw Moonlight, both of us had the same reaction. The, the lights came up at the end of the film, and Eric turned to me and said, that should be that should be required viewing for every person in America right now. And the now. theater was packed. Like, packed? You, you know, we haven't seen a theater like that in a long time. And I actually saw, I listened to a, a report on NPR about um, small theaters and how they're just not getting a turnout like they used to. But we saw a lot of land, and we saw... Moonlight and it was just packed. It was just well, and incredible in two to different see that. cities too. I mean, we saw Moonlight at the Cedar Lee here in Cleveland, and then we saw La La Land in Pittsburgh at a small independent theater. And it was both both theaters, not just for the films we were seeing, but for everything, were just absolutely packed. You couldn't even find a seat. It was really nice to see. And I don't mean to be a hater in La La Land, but I hope that they don't win all the awards at the Oscars. Which is big coming from Eric because I'm a I'm a Ryan Gosling fanboy yeah he's my man crush big time big time <laughs> <laughs> i wonder so, you know we were really excited to see it though but jen i know you really liked la la land yeah but i'm a california girl so it had a special place in my heart when i was seeing all those people dance on the 405 freeway during traffic which is how i feel many times on the 405 when i'm stuck <laughs> i just want to break out into song it? and dance yeah so I think there's a lot of conversation out there about what's going to happen in 2017 trend-wise. And, you know, over the last few months, we've seen some kind of interesting things when you think about the whole man versus machine dynamic. You know, especially around holiday, there were these big trends in tech-based gifts. And then, of course, there were CES, and there was a lot of, um, you know, kind of wearable slash home-related technology and I'm kind of curious. I mean, what do you guys think? What's going to happen in 2017? I really think it's that you're going to see a lot more machines listening to us mm. uh, in our homes. Things like the creation of... Which is like my worst nightmare. It is your worst nightmare. I mean, when, when I installed the nest in the house, I think Kelly I was almost ready moved to kick out. me out. <laughs> but no, I think, I think you're going to see with, with the creation of Google Home and then also Amazon Echo, you know, people are, are bringing this technology into their home. They're going to become more comfortable with it. It's going to be part of their lives. Uh, they've been talking about the Internet of Things for years now, but it's actually happening in people's homes. Uh, what do you guys think that's going to do? And, and, and how does it change the role of marketers now that they're in people's homes, listening to what they're doing, and they're often there? Ordering them things that they want to purchase. Yeah. Well, how much control does a consumer have over that? So my best friend has an Echo and it's pretty cool. You walk in, you say, Echo, turn on the lights. Echo, what is the weather today? Echo, I'm going to make spaghetti bolognese. What is the recipe? I mean, it's it's convenient. It's very cool. 
But the idea of them listening when you don't want them to listen, that, that part freaks me out. So how much control do we as consumers have to make sure that that doesn't happen? I guess it believe, I guess it de- depends on how much of a conspiracy theorist you are. Because from my perspective, <laughs> even if you have control, you don't have control once you right. how do you know that, that it's element off? into your home. <laughs> I think the power is really in the hands of the technology companies and whether they want to share that information with someone. But that information is being captured. But it's still out there. Like, for instance, um, the thumbprint or fingerprint ID to open your phone, I refuse to do that because I don't want to put my fingerprint in this device and then someone out there, it's in a cloud somewhere, could have access to my fingerprints. I don't know. Am I being paranoid or is this? Absolutely not. And in fact, I recently read that you should not be flashing the peace sign in photographs because they are now have the ability to zoom into that photograph and Ooh. create, you know, pick up your fingerprints. Well, and interestingly enough, I mean, not to go too far so down the rabbit don't, hole. Don't offer any peace in a photo. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no peace for you. Um, I was going to say not to go too far down the rabbit hole. It's a stupid thing to do in a photo anyway. It is. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we can all use a little peace, love, and understanding right now, but... Um, that and girls that put their hand on their hip when they take a photo. So doubly horrible. Is, oh my gosh, do don't do both of those things. Don't, don't do it. <laughs> I wish you guys could see that. Yeah, you missed yeah. out for sure. Well, I, I think part of the problem is is convenience has become pervasive. So in this attempt to make it, oh, that's so fantastic that you just looked at this online and then a few hours later or even just moments later, this has happened to me, you know, and everybody knows this, you go to Facebook and suddenly that company is in your newsfeed. That to me is the creepiest thing, you know, and I think so many people and marketing, the idea is like, oh, isn't this great? We're getting to know you and know your personality and your shopping habits. But I, I personally don't like that. As, as somebody who's always loved shopping, um, I think this, you know, call me old fashioned, but this, um, you know, like you were just talking about with Alexa, like show me this recipe or, or I want this, you know, I, to me, I like the idea of the hunt and looking for something and researching something. And I just feel we're becoming so soft, you know, everything at your fingertips, this whole Jetsons ideal of, you know, instant, you know, I like the idea of, of the research and and I think what marketing is, it's almost shooting itself in the foot because it's becoming so... I can't think of a better word than soft, you know. Well, I think, you know, one thing that happened with shopper marketing, this is about going back about four or five years ago, but there was a lot of discussion around what's going to happen with the real the retail experience. So are brick and mortar stores going to become showrooming opportunities where people don't necessarily buy, they just go there and browse and then they actually purchase online? There's a lot of fear around that. And that doesn't seem to be coming true, at least as quickly as the exactly. um, you know, the futurists at that point were predicting because people still like what you're talking about, which is the experience. The experience, being able to feel the the fabrics or see the sofa in person and yeah. And and this is just personal I'm not a huge online shopper, so I'm really not the one I'm very slanted in my opinions of, you know, the online shopping experience. But um I do think that this forced marketing and this over-personalization of, of marketing that you're seeing through social media is, to me, incredibly isolating. It isolates me. Like, I've, I will block the ad. I have no interest in that company after our, you know, just for that reason alone. 
Well, and I think, Brian, what you're talking about, I mean, it's, it's, it's the behavioral target, it's retargeting, it's automation, it's, it's programmatic advertising. And, and they're, you know, what people say is the benefit of that is the personalization. Mm-hmm. And that's to a very specific audience because clearly what you're saying is that there's the backlash that's happening. So that whole gamut of what we just talked about with marketing, you know, that that's a transition of moving from an art to science. And I think you need to always have the artistic aspect to it. It needs to be that balance of art and science. I think the other thing, you know, for anyone who works in this world um, that becomes more and more important is how do you use the technology to your advantage and use it to surprise and delight your customers and not aggravate them exactly uh, because i think that it, it you know when it first came out it was so novel look how niche we can get with our messaging and we can put it in people's faces but i think to your point it's starting to get too prescriptive yes and so how do we offer something at those touch points that's going to be of value versus just you know using our megaphone and screaming in people's faces and i think that's you know that's where the best marketing campaigns get it right is, you know, they, they have the ability to utilize the data in a way that's going to let them deliver something of value versus just getting to their customer faster. Right. Quality, not quantity mm-hmm. and speed. Mm-hmm. Well, like in this situation here, the data that we're hearing from Brian is, is, is that kind of psychographic insight that he likes the hunt. So, as a marketer, you should empower that and create the tools that allow him to have that hunt in, in the retail environment. So it's not automation. It's not programmatic advertising. That doesn't help him in his hunt. Sure, it serves it up quicker for him, but that's not what he wants. It's actually making it easier. He wants the challenge. So exactly. I think that's the, the opportunity for marketers is to balance that data and, and come up with something that is more artistic and less scientific. I'm still Absolutely. interested, like, with that thought, you know, I, I think a few years ago, you're going back almost 10 years ago now, but the whole idea of augmented reality and what marketers were doing to utilize that technology and overlay it over real-world experiences, I think it started to go in a really interesting direction, and then people got really wrapped up in things like barcode scanners and QR codes and social media point of sale, and we started to get away from these more innovative ideas of how to embed technology into the real-world experience. I think if we can get back to that place and think a little bit more about, like you said, Eric, like how to drive that you know kind of like uh, you know desire by the consumer to have more of a hunt um you know in this case versus just trying to like connect with us on facebook or whatever it is i think that that's where we can be really successful and get more creative so i do i do think it comes back to you know working with a team that understands how to use technology in a creative and impactful way rather than just being on all platforms in all ways at all times just for the sake of doing it. Which is, you know, unfortunately, I think the pressure that a lot of advertisers feel like they're under, like, oh, there's a new technology. I have to be able to use it. We should be using it. That's where our audience is. But does it make sense for you as a brand? Not always. And I think the reason we got to this place is because the dynamics between the marketer and the company where they were focusing on the, on the wrong business challenge. They, they focus on lack of sales or lack, lack of website traffic. So then they focus on that. And these are, you know, you can't deny that behavioral automation programmatic are encouraging 
and fulfilling that that goal. But that's not the problem. The problem, you know, using again Brian's example, is he he wants that hunt. So how do we solve that problem? You know, or, which or embrace does that. play into the bottom line, it, which does. So I think that that's another critical thing we need to focus on is what is the true problem? How do we find that? How do we reveal that? You know, it's not always just through numbers. So what else are you seeing from a trend perspective, Eric? I mean, there are a bunch of other things that are going on in terms of this technology sort of man versus machine paradigm uh, in 2017. But I mean, are, are there any other things that are sticking out to you right now? Well, we talked about this in one of our recent cool hunting sessions. At Shark Minnow, we get together about once a month, and we have a cool hunting session where we talk about latest trends, and, and we just go over it together and, and share our, our thoughts and beliefs. And, and one of them we talked about was kind of related to this topic of of machines, you know, the human versus the machine, uh, was how is the machine going to affect content creation and design? And what does that mean for us as we as we move forward i think in ways that it could help is maybe the more kind of cut and paste type of content so maybe somehow you formulate the right voice for your client for instance and so then the computer or the algorithm knows how to formulate that voice in that social post, let's say, for instance. Um, in that way, I think, and maybe that's more of kind of a marketing systems thing, but in that way, as a content creator, that would help me to free up my time to get more creative with longer form content. That's would you trust it, though? There. Would you find yourself trusting it? It depends on the topic. So, for instance, if we have a client that let's say as a restaurant and we're wanting to crank out a couple posts a day about a menu item, I think I would feel less like I have to manage it, manage it. Exactly. Something of a product as opposed to being more creative. And I, and I want to write an article that's a profile about one of the sous chefs at the restaurant. Like I wouldn't, I see. Yeah. I wouldn't trust a computer or an algorithm to do that. And, and I think people, it's kind of the same. So it's, it's almost like when you need that more of that connection, you f- would not trust it to the yes. algorithm or the machine, Yeah, which is poetic and symbolic in its own sense. Yeah. Well, and it's those those bigger topic issues that you're you're talking about. Those those are the ones that are going to have the biggest impact on our clients' business. So that's where you need to have more of your focus, and I think that's where the client should focus more of their time. So often, these things that are more transactional are only pushing the needle a little bit. It's where you put more of your time and your effort. Obviously, that's where you're going to see the greatest return, and and that often that needs more of a human touch. That's mm-hmm. where the machine cannot help. Uh, you know, it might make it full of keywords and, 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 and drive more traffic, but it's not going to achieve the results that we want. Right. Because you want that genuine relationship between well, the content you're creating and the person who's reading it. And I think people will know the difference. I mean, we're not really in that area yet of robots creating content, meaningful content. I mean, what do you guys think? Don't you think a person would be able to see through that and when they read something know if it's 
been touched by a human or simply an algorithm? I think so. I mean, I, I do read some content and it's clear that they're using automation tools to pull in um, different aspects of their story, for lack of a better descriptor. But um, it also depends on what kind of content you're talking about, because I do think that there's content that's out there for storytelling purposes, and then there's content that's more informational. Mm -hmm. um, and even with some of the trends that we're seeing with how Google is changing, how search results are presented, and what comes up at the top of your feed or your uh, comes up at the top of your results page. Um, I, I think that it is starting to drive us towards a place where um, where there isn't as much storytelling. There's more fact-based content that's being rewarded in a search, a search engine like Google. Um, so what does that mean for content? And can people tell versus do they care? I hope so. <laughs> I really hope so. I think a great example is Eric and I had a phone conference with a client where we were presenting our work in the hopes of working and collaborating with them on an identity project. And he even said to us, oh, it would be very easy for me to go online to one of those online logo business card services, which are obviously the bane of my existence. <laughs> and... And I said to him, you know, we very much appreciate that you have the foresight and, and the knowledge to know that, yes, you're going to get a business card and a logo for a fraction of what you would get if you were to go to a firm or an agency. However, there's it is all al algorithm. And it's it's you know, I've had people that have used the service and always are coming to me for my opinion to like which one should I pick and obviously I want to say none of them because they are <laughs> it's it you could just tell that it's you know keywords that they enter and you know I had a friend who had a it was a fitness company and he had given them some of the, the ideas and thoughts that he had and so you could tell that they just typed in leaf nature and it was it almost looked like he was a florist it, you know they looked nothing like you know what he was hoping to do and, it, and it's a great example because those aren't two things that typically would go together when you think of a personal trainer and nature. And so that was a great example of that technology and this production line approach to design. Well, and it's a reflection of the omission of human elements. Absolutely. The, I mean, well, that's the, the, one of the most important parts of the creation of an identity system or design is that research and and finding a way to make those connections and so when it's just boiled down to what peg goes into what hole there's no soul to the identity you know we all look at logos every day and and advertising every day and and I don't think you need to be in our field or be a designer to recognize what connects with you you know and and I think that it almost even circles back to what I was talking about before when you just realize it's this automatic mechanic algorithm that is meant to get a reaction from you but it really doesn't because the authenticity has just been completely removed yeah, it just doesn't and make you feel anything it doesn't feel anything and also one of the key things you know having just come off of design two identities in particular it's all about that you know it sounds so cliche but making that connection with your client having the conversation with them watching them react when you present 
the logos to them and and that to me is you know i always use the term it's a it's a temperature taking moment and that from there that's where you see like what they're reacting to and and what gave them that visceral visceral reaction that they where they see for the first time this is the visual voice we've been looking for and when you have these online design services that is completely absent and therefore and therefore the the richness of the design is naturally completely absent in turn so each podcast we want to give a shout out to people that we think are killing it this week so uh jen why don't you go first who needs a bigger boat 19 year old nina donovan of franklin tennessee needs a bigger boat because she wrote this amazing poem called nasty woman which was uh performed by Ashley Judd at the Women's March in Washington. If you don't know it, look it up. It's amazing. I think Donald Glover, a.k.a. Paperboy's cousin, also known as Childish Gambino, needs a bigger boat. Atlanta is just an amazing show. I think his new album is incredible. I I didn't get to go to his his amazing performance this summer, but everything I saw from uh, that was incredible uh, when he was at Joshua Tree. So I just think he's doing some incredible things across genres, music, film, you name it. He gets my shout out. This week, my bigger boat goes out to all those roosters out there because, hey, roosters, Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year is here. This is your year. (laughs) My son's a rooster. Is he really? Caden's a rooster. Nice. It's his year. (laughs) My unborn child is a rooster. Nice. (laughs) She and Caden are good company. I think Ned from Whiskey Grade deserves a bigger boat because he sent me, he and I often are sharing style inspirations over text and through Instagram and talk about direct marketing in a positive way with that human touch. He sent a photo of an incredible bomber jacket that he decided I needed to see. And of course it, led me to go directly to Whiskey Grade to try it on, and he ordered it for me, and it's on its way. And so that's either an incredible friend of style or insanely genius sale marketing guru right there. (laughs) But it worked, and I appreciate it, and I look forward to um, sharing it with everybody. I would say this will be a March debut. (laughs) That's what I'm thinking. I love it. Yay, I can't wait to this week's episode is in support of Global Cleveland. We had the opportunity to do our Giving Tuesday project with them this year, and it was extremely rewarding to see what an impact they're having on continuing to position Cleveland as a global city and allowing us to live our legacy every day and welcoming newcomers from around the world. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marcia Ciccone. Fashion producing by Felicia Wimpel.